Good morning, everybody. It's good to see all of y'all. I want to add my welcome to Shaka's welcome from earlier, especially to those of you who are visiting with us, and especially if you are here this morning as somebody who's considering what it means to be a Christian. We're thankful that you've chosen to come. Uh, What you're about to hear now is something that's at the center of our week as Christians, a time when we gather with fellow believers to dig into God's Word. We believe God has spoken to us, the same God who who made us and who made everything else that exists is a God who speaks and who's spoken in a way that we can understand and that the main place we get to access what this God has said to us is in the Bible. It's that conviction that brings us every week to a central part of our worship gathering where we do our best to understand what God has said to us in his word. So if you're here this morning and that's new to you, maybe the Bible is new to you, then what I want to do before we, before we even dig into to what we're going to talk about this morning is, is offer you a gift from us to you. We've, offered, we've put some Bibles to offer to you at the center of each aisle. They're up under the chairs at the center of each aisle. We'd love for you to take that with you if you don't have a, a copy of it. Uh, for one thing, it'd be helpful for you to have it this morning because what we're going to do for the next section of our time together is walk through a part of the Bible, verse by verse, line by line. And a lot of what I'm going to say is going to make a lot more sense to you if you can follow along with what I'm saying. So please flag somebody down who's sitting at the end of the aisle, ask them to pass one of those Bibles to you and take it with you. We'd love for you to have it. What we're going to be looking at this morning is Psalm 145. Psalm 145. So all of you guys can go ahead and turn over there. Um, Psalm 145 is the last of a summer's worth of psalms that we've been looking at together uh, as a way of responding to the Exodus. So what we looked at at the first part of this year was a, a book of the Old Testament called the Exodus. And it tells the story of one of the most important events in Israel's life. When Israel was enslaved in Egypt, God heard their cries. God sent Moses to them and was with them in great power to deliver them from one of the most powerful empires in the world and set them up after a time of wandering through the wilderness in a, in a land that he promised to give them, a place where they could know peace and friendship with him. We've been looking at that story because that story is a lot bigger than just a historical account of something that happened to Israel. That story echoes down through all of Israel's life and, and all the way to Jesus and all the way to us as a story that sets a pattern, a set of expectations for what we can expect from God. The story was always meant to communicate more than just a record of what happened, truths about the God who was behind everything that happened. The purpose of the story was to make him known. And so what we looked at in the first part of this year was the story itself, what actually went down and what we could learn about God from it. And then this summer what we've been looking at is how Israel responded to that story because in the story is an invitation to us, like Israel, to worship God, the God who delivers to enter into this story as our own story. These stories are always meant to move us towards something, not to entertain us or even to enlighten us, but to motivate us to worship. And the Psalms show us how to do it. Now, some of these Psalms have been Psalms that show us what not to do. This one today is a Psalm that shows us what we should do. A Psalm that shows us, perhaps in the most generic way we've looked at, in the most abstracted and zoomed out highest level of the psalms we've looked at, what appropriate praise looks like when we're praising the God who redeemed us. We're going to focus on this response because it's right and because it's beautiful, but, but I think if we've learned anything from our series talking about how to respond to redemption, it's that appropriate responses like this one are easier said than done. 
And that all of us would be ridiculous to think that we're up for this kind of response any more than Israel would be. And we've seen how Israel, more often than not, responded to God's goodness. We've seen ourselves in their forgetfulness. We've seen ourselves in the fact that they were always looking for other options that might provide more than God had provided to them. And because we've seen ourselves in Israel's failures, it's difficult to see ourselves sometimes in the appropriate responses like the one this psalm puts in front of us. I think we should be honest about that before we even get into it. We want to be honest about our inabilities so that we can be even more clear than maybe we have been about the resource we have in Jesus. My hope for today, as we look at this, at this psalm, which gives us a best-case scenario response to the goodness of God in your life, is that not only will we see a target set in front of us, but we'll see the one who hit that target for us, and that we'll see how we can be invited into the song Jesus has been singing to his Father forever. We can make it our own. That's what I'm hoping to show today. I'm going to ask two questions of this psalm. What does appropriate praise look like? That's what this psalm is meant to show us. And then how can we hope to offer praise like this? Now, before we get to these two questions, I want to give you guys a couple of points of orientation that I think will help you as we get into this psalm. So this is uh, identified as a psalm of David, the last of the psalms identified with David. So David, of course, was Israel's most famous and beloved king, their best example of what a godly king looks like. He was their praise leader representing his people, standing over them as their head, as a king. He praised God and guided them into the kind of praise that God is worthy of. And many of the Psalms are attached to him because that was his role in Israel's life. This one is the last of those Psalms. And though we don't have a date attached to it and we don't have any kind of obvious smoking gun reference to this being the last one that he wrote, it fits really well as a kind of capstone for David's ministry in Israel's life and for the things that he that he gives us throughout the Psalms. This one is zoomed out, as I mentioned before, and and general in a way that perfectly captures the kind of ministry David had in Israel and called Israel to join him in. It fits, in other words, as a summary of David's how to praise that he gave through most of his life to Israel. A kind of farewell address from Israel's greatest worship leader. That's one thing you need to know about this Psalm. We're going to try to read it in that light. Another thing, and this is not going to come through in your, in your translations, but I think you should know just because it's really cool, is that this is one of several psalms that's an acrostic, meaning that the, uh, that the author chose to write each, begin, each opening line, a poetic device that he used, started with the next line in the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet, of course. So it doesn't come through in our English, but it'd be like if you wanted to write uh, a song and the first line starts with A, and then the next line starts with B, and the next one starts with C, and so on. That's what he's done here. Psalm 119 is the most, the most famous example of that. It's super long. This one is, is following the same device, but it's a lot shorter, so we have a chance of covering it today. Uh, I want to I read it. I'm going to read the entire thing before we go through it together. It's, it's on the longish side, but not too long. Not too long for us to honor God's word now by standing as I read from Psalm 145. I'm going to pick up in verse 1, and you'll see the psalm runs for 21 verses. Let's read God's word now. A song of praise of David. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I'll bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised and His greatness is unsearchable. 
One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and His mercy is over all that He's made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways, and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him, He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love Him, but all the wicked He will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless His holy name forever and ever. This is God's Word. You can be seated. I mentioned I want to answer, I ask and answer two questions today. What does appropriate praise look like That's what this psalm is meant to put in front of us. And how can we hope to praise God like this? The tone of this praise psalm that that we've just read together has been described as a kind of gushing river that just flows where it flows. You know, for all the planning that went into the acrostic, and that's not easy to do, to come up with lines that start with these letters on purpose and make it all fit together, that's a difficult thing. And that takes a lot of planning and a lot of intentionality. And for all the intentionality that went into that acrostic, it's like... It's like the rest of the psalm just gushes. It doesn't go point by point through a list or a kind of argument. It just spills over from thought to thought like a mountain spring that barrels over rocks and around trees and down waterfalls. That's the effect that it had on me just reading through it. Just this washing, gushing river of praise. It's wonderful to read it like that and have it wash over you. But though the psalm begins with this kind of praising, though the the, 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 the call to praise is the first half or so of the psalm. What I want to f- talk about first is where the psalm ends. So if we think about this psalm as a kind of cascading, rushing mountain river, what I want to do now is hike up it all the way to the top and see where it's coming from. Because it has a source. And if we don't identify the source if we don't identify where this praise flows from, then the praise itself won't happen in our lives. The other reason I want to start at the end, sort of hike up this mountain stream to see where the source lies, is that I want you to see why we're talking about this psalm at the end of a series of psalms responding to the Exodus. 
Now, maybe you notice it doesn't actually talk explicitly about the Exodus, not in the way some of the other Psalms we've looked at uh, talk about it. There's no mention of specific people or, or facts from that story. But I think what you'll see as we look through the end of the psalm is echoes that are undeniable. That this psalm is offering a kind of generalized version of things that happened, things that God did in the Exodus, helping us to realize that the Exodus was just a pattern for God's redemption that runs through the whole scripture. That this psalm generalizes from that account into how we should respond to all of God's kindness that we experience in our lives. That's what I want to show you to connect this psalm to what we've been saying. The source of appropriate praise is what I want you to see before we look at the scope of appropriate praise. So here's the source. The source of appropriate praise, according to this song, flows from an experience of God's kindness. It's, it, it's a cataloged and remembered experience of God's kindness in your life. That's verses 14 to 20, especially. Verses 14 to 20 are, are like a list of statements of how God has been kind in all his works. Did you see the end of verse 13? The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And verse 14 shows us how. Now, what I want to show you is, is that this list of general statements about who he is always for everyone echoes who he was specifically in history for Israel when they were in Egypt. The point of that event, one of the things we said over and over in the study of Exodus, the point of the event was God making his name known. God showing through that story who he is, what you can expect from him in a relationship with him. Think about this psalm as that work getting done, as God's name being known, as it going out from that event over all the, all the earth through all the time. Now look at the list. Let me show you what I'm talking about. Start with verse 14. I love the expressiveness of this verse, the vivid way that it captures our weakness and vulnerability and God's kindness in it. Verse 14 says, the Lord upholds all who are falling. Imagine a person whose strength is just so zonked that they can't even stand. Imagine it as an emotional condition. Surely you've been there at some point where you feel like you're just coming unraveled, where, where you, you have no ballast, you have no stability, no, you have no, no point on which you can stand. You, you feel like you, you don't know which way is up. You feel like you're falling. Have you felt that? The Lord is near to those who are falling. He upholds those who are falling. And he raises up all who are bowed down. Now that phrase should sound familiar. When we first meet Israel in Egypt, one of the most common ways they're described in chapter two of Ex chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus is as those who were under the heavy burdens that the Egyptians had put on them. That they're groaning. Their only move is to groan under burdens that have them bowed down low. The Lord said in Exodus 6.6 6, when he first comes to Israel through Moses and tells them what he's going to do, what he tells them is, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. He raises up those who are bowed down and Exodus shows us. Now look at verses 15 and 16. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand and you satisfy the desire of every living thing. That point is straightforward enough and it's echoed throughout the Bible. The Bible teaches that, that everything that eats gets its food from God's hand. 
from the world that he upholds. No matter what kind of intermediaries you've got, whether you're growing your own food, doing your own work, or buying it from the store, one way or the other, no matter how it came to you, it came to you from God. That's what the Bible teaches. Everyone must look to him for food. And the Bible also teaches that he gives it with an open hand. He's not the kind of God you've got to pry good things from. He's generous. It's in his nature to give and to do so with joy. And what's framed here in verses 15 and 16 is a kind of general truth. This one's also an echo of Israel's experience that we looked at in, in our study of Exodus. One of the clearest examples of the truth that all things get their food from God's hand is Israel wandering around in the wilderness with no food that they can see or claim, looking to God who provided food from the sky every day to feed them. It reads as an echo of God's generosity to Israel in the wilderness. Exodus has shown this to us. Maybe the best example of, a, of an Exodus echo in this psalm is in the next, example, is the next, uh, next item in the list. Verses 18 to 20, or 18 and 19. The Lord is near to all who call on him, we're told. To all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. Let me read to you from Exodus chapter 2. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And this language comes up again and again throughout Exodus. Israel cried. That was their only move. God hears their cry and he saves them. And then in verse 20, to sum it up, we're told the Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. In this fallen, sin-sick world, you can't have one without the other. Israel's deliverance went hand in hand with Egypt's destruction. The wicked held God's people under their power. They were given warning after warning and held on. And so God, to deliver his people, to preserve those who love him, destroyed the wicked. It's another echo of the Exodus story and another key point we're meant to take from it. I think uh, to, to step back now, after having looked at this list of the examples of God's kindness, seeing how they're echoing the, the, the Exodus, seeing that these are the source of the praises this psalm is full of, I think it helps to step back a little bit and to think again about this being a psalm of David at the end of David's life looking back on what he had not just, not just on what he'd been taught all of his life about Israel's experience, but on what he himself lived through, what he knew himself from God's hand. Uh, I heard a sermon on this passage from a pastor, faithful uh, pastor in the UK named Dick Lucas, whose sermons I've come to really appreciate over the years. He, uh, he was preaching on this passage, thinking about it being a, a Psalm of David, possibly written at the end of David's life, maybe David's last psalm, we just don't know, but it, it certainly reads like you would expect a psalm like that to read. And then noticing that right here in the middle of the psalm is basically a direct quote from the clearest definition God gives of who he is in the story of the Exodus. In verses eight and nine, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's a direct quote 
from a moment in the Exodus where Moses asks God to reveal himself and God says, I'll tell you my name. And this is what he says. So it's like David, who had heard that story all his life, who knew these, these, uh, these accounts handed down to him in his version of Sunday school all of his life. It's like now him at the end of his life, looking back on what he'd taught, been taught and also looking back on what he'd known himself from God's hand is saying, it's all true. I've seen it. Thinking about this at that point in David's life, being David applying to himself all the things that Israel knew from God's hand reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in Star Wars, The Force Awakens. Uh, there's, a, there's a scene in, in that movie where the aging Han Solo overhears a couple young whippersnappers talking about legends they've heard, pieces, pieces of, uh, of what they've heard growing up about the Force and the Jedi and the resistance against the Empire and Luke Skywalker and Darth Vader and all that. And, and Han Solo says simply to them, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it, it's all true. They're not legends. They're for real. And I can tell you that because I was there. And it's like that's what David is now able to say. Like all that stuff you've been hearing about what God did for Israel. That line you learned so long ago that he's gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That stuff you learned about him being, being near to those who call on him, hearing those who cry out and saving them. It's all true. I've seen it. I was there. Now, if that's the source of appropriate praise, if it's rooted in a personal experience of God's kindness that you can testify to, to anyone who will listen, the next thing I want you to see about this appropriate praise is the scope of it. Because seeing the scope of appropriate praise is going to set us up for the next question we want to get to today. So, at the risk of, of ruining the natural effect of this psalm, you know, I talked about the, the, the natural effect is kind of this cascading river where it's like a mountain stream just pouring, gushing, pouring over rocks and trees and waterfalls and what have you. That, that's the effect it's supposed to have on us at the risk of ruining it by breaking it down too much. I do want to break it down a little bit. And I just want to point out to you a few of the details that I think we're meant to get from the opening verses of this psalm, from the call to praise that we know now is based on God's kindness in Israel's history and in David's life you're going to see that appropriate praise is boundless. It touches everything and everyone in every context. Let me just give you a few examples. Look at verse 2. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. So appropriate praise is every day. And appropriate praise is forever. It's as specific as July 28, 2019. And it's as general as eternity. Look at verse 4. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. Appropriate generation is one generation to another generation. This is no passing fad. This is for everybody. One generation passes it to another generation to another generation who passes it to another generation ad infinitum. Verse 12 captures the same idea. Appropriate praise just goes on and on from generation to generation. Look at how the psalm begins and at how the psalm ends. 
You'll see that appropriate praise is as specific as the individual. That's where the psalm begins. I will extol you, my God and King. And it's as general and universal as all flesh, where the psalm ends. Let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. And for the individual, speaking of the individual and his role in it, it's got to be personal. Verse 2, I will bless you coming out of your own heart experience, but not just personal, not just between you and God. It's public too. Verse 6, I will declare your greatness. That's aimed at other people. So it's got to be genuinely yours in your own personal relationship with God, but it's also got to be public, something you'll shout from the rooftops to anyone who will listen. And it can't just be posturing either because verse 5 says, I will meditate on your wondrous works. So it's not just things that you say. It's even what's going on in your mind and in your heart. It touches everything. There's no part of you that shouldn't be caught up with praise. Praise everywhere, for everyone, for all time. That's what appropriate praise looks like. That's its scope. If God's kindness, or or to use the term we used last week, God's steadfast love... If it's like the oxygen by which we live, the basic ingredient of our environment, if it's what defines our life and the world, our experience of his kindness, then praise like this psalm is just like basic breathing. We take in his kindness, we breathe out praise like this. It's not some technique you have to master, it just is what you do. All the time. In every context. What does appropriate praise look like? Well, it looks like everyday prayer to God, recounting His goodness and His greatness. It looks like family devotions, talking to your kids about what God has done in history and in your life. It looks like declaring His praise to people around you, your neighbors and your co-workers and your friends, but not just people you already know. It looks like offering this opportunity to all flesh. It means international missions. It means taking the gospel to people who have never heard about Jesus. Appropriate praise touches every context of your life and goes on and on and on. And through it all, it's a praise that is unreserved, as one person put it, unbroken and unending. It is gushing like that overflowing mountain stream through your mind, through your heart, through your words, wherever you go. Now, is that what your praise looks like? Not mine. How can we hope to praise the Lord like this? It's a compelling vision. It is beautifully crafted. It is a gift to us even to be able to read this work of art. But we know this this text is meant for far more than our own entertainment. It's calling us to praise like this. It's showing us what's expected, what's necessary. Of all those who have experienced God's kindness, does your praise look like this? How could you possibly hope to praise the Lord like this? One reason that that this psalm is part of our series this summer, to be honest, just put all my cards on the table here. One reason this psalm is, is part of this series is because of a wonderfully helpful treatment of it that I came across in a book on the psalms by a guy named Christopher Ash a pastor from the UK. He's just become a real encouragement to me through his writings over the last few years. Um, I was so taken, so encouraged by what he had to say about this psalm that it, it is a main, one of the main reasons that I wanted to include it in our series. So one of the things that, that, that Christopher Ash warns about 
in his treatment of this psalm is using this psalm as a kind of whip for self-punishment that just heaps more guilt and reinforces your sense that you're a failure at prayer. I mean, when, when you look a lot more like Israel in Psalm 106, where they soon forgot God's works, that's the theme over and over. They soon forgot, they soon forgot. When you look a lot more like Israel than you do like David in this psalm, it, the psalms like this one can actually discourage you rather than inspire you to respond to redemption like this. They can actually make it harder for you to stand up under the weight that this psalm puts on your shoulders. There's no gospel in that kind of reading of this psalm. And that's what we want to avoid. Ash says, mere exhortation to praise will not and cannot turn our hearts to praise because there's no gospel in it. So how do you get there? What will get us to praise like this? That's a huge question, not, not just because of the calling this psalm puts on our lives, but because our praise of God like this, a heartfelt praise, an everyday praise, an honest praise of Him, that's how the world comes to know the truth about Him. That's how His name gets known abroad. A lot rides on us responding to redemption in this way. How do we get there? I want to show you how Jesus praised the Lord perfectly for you so that when we can look at how we can join Jesus for ourselves. We'll only get to praise like this if we first see Jesus has already been there for us and that then Jesus invites us not to copy him but to join him. Now, that means that the first thing we need to do is hear and receive the gospel. And in this psalm, the gospel is the news, this is what Ash says, the news that Jesus Christ is our praise leader. I want to show you what he means by that because he's spot on biblically. He's seeing something that the New Testament points us to, that when Jesus came and lived and died and rose again for us, one of the things he came to do was to respond perfectly to the goodness of God in his life so that then we could have his track record as our own so that his singing of this appropriate praise becomes our singing of it so that we're not told to go and do likewise but to come and to be caught up into what he's already done. I know, that, I know that's a, a big idea. I want to chew on that for a little bit and make it as clear as I can because I think it's so true to what the rest of the Bible do with this particular psalm. Something that helped me a couple years ago uh, when we were studying the psalms, um, I don't remember when that was, two or three years ago, we did a whole series on the psalms and all the different types of psalms that there are. That there are. And there was, a, there was a commentary, it was my favorite one, by a guy named Derek Kidner. Um, we used to pump that commentary a lot during that series, so some of you guys have probably got it and been reading it. There was something in the, in, in, in the way that that author was talking about the psalms overall something that struck me and really helped me to read them better. He was talking about how reading and using the Psalms changes with the coming of Jesus. He was saying that, that the New Testament teaches that, that all the Old Testament was meant to talk about Jesus in one way or another. Every bit of it says something about him. And that the interesting thing about the Psalms is that when they get quoted throughout the New Testament, they get quoted as the words of Jesus speaking through the Psalms. Now, sometimes it's real clear and obvious because it's like a prophecy. 
You know, and Jesus on the cross quotes from Psalm 22 as his own words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sometimes it's real clear like that. But what Kidner was noticing is that other times when the Psalms are quoted, they're quoted as words of Jesus in places that didn't require a kind of future coming king. In places where they're just, like, they, they were fine as is, as D- David's words in the context that David lived in. But, but the New Testament sees them as Jesus' words, praying through David. Kidner says that the special interest of phrases like this is their lack of special interest. That they just seem normal. The writers quoting them, he says, must, must assume that readers would hear the words of David as the words also of the Messiah. Here's a great example of it. In case this is still too abstract, let me give you one good example of this happening in the New Testament so that we can then apply it to the psalm we're looking at this morning. In Acts chapter 2, when Peter is preaching the gospel at Pentecost, He's giving one of the first gospel sermons ever given in history. He's using the Psalms to flesh out his, his, his sermon. His sermon text is Psalm 16. This is in Acts chapter 2 if you want to look at it. He quotes a long section of Psalm 16 and introduces it in verse 25 of Acts chapter 2 with these words. For David says concerning him. Jesus is the one who's being talked about in these verses. And then he quotes, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. This is all straight out of Psalm 16. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You've made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. That's all Psalm 16. Peter's quoting it. This is his sermon text. Now listen to what he does with it. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence that the patriarch David about the patriarch David, that, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he'd see one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Jesus, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. You see what David's doing? Say that, that couldn't be, or what, what Peter's doing rather. He said that, that those words couldn't have been about David. His body is rotting now. It's rotted. It's in the grave. I'll show you where his tomb is. David was speaking about something bigger than him. He was looking ahead. It was someone else singing these words. We could say something very similar about Psalm 145. Was David's praise unreserved like this? Was it unbroken and unending like this psalm calls for? No, of course not. Even in his own life, his praise was faltering. And besides what he did with his his words, his life did not fully and perfectly praise God. David is famous not just for his holiness, but for his sin. And at the end of it all, David's praise was cut short by David's death. He... He's speaking beyond himself in this psalm. It's bigger than him in his experience, just like Psalm 16. But there was one, another anointed one of David's line who did praise God perfectly with unreserved and unbroken and unending praise that continues on even now. So if praise is, is meant to make his greatness known, God's greatness known, No one has ever or will ever show more of the Father's glory than Jesus did. 
His words and his life worked perfectly together in perfect integrity to bring God glory. That's what John 1 says about him. That's what Jesus says about himself looking back at the end of John. John 17. I have shown them your glory. So applied to Jesus, to his words and his life, his track record, the words of Psalm 145 are not hyperbole. They're not just poetic license describing something bigger and more flowery language than what's true. They are an accurate, detailed, and literal description of what he was all about all the time. Now, where the gospel comes into this, friends, is that what Jesus did, he did not do as your example, but as your redeemer. What Jesus did, every word, every day, he did for you. One of the most important things I want you to know if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, you're considering what it means to follow Jesus, is that following Jesus is not like other religions. In following Jesus, the call is not to go and do like him first and foremost. There is no sense from the scriptures that you, that you can expect to get more from God's hand if you offer more through your life to him as a gift. No, what the gospel tells us is that it's already too late for any of us to deserve anything good from God because we have denied him with our lives already. And that in Jesus, he has offered through his own son the, to pay the penalty that our sin deserves so that we could be forgiven And that not only has he done what's necessary to take away our sin, when Jesus came and lived the perfect life that he lived, he was also offering to God everything we owed to God already. Not just a penalty for what we haven't given God, but a positive contribution of everything we should have always given to God. His perfect life is a gift to us. So that his track record becomes ours. What's asked for from us in the gospel is just faith. To identify with Jesus rather than with ourselves. To accept what he's done rather than try to redo his work on our own. Now, if it's true that Jesus did more than just take away the penalty of our sin by dying for us, but also became perfectly righteous and holy for us, And that means that Jesus offered the perfect response to God's kindness that always eluded Israel and that has always eluded each one of us. He saw God's goodness perfectly. He never forgot it. He never wanted more. And he told the truth about it even at great cost to himself and he did it all for anyone who trusts in him. And what that means now is that when God hears us praying in Jesus' name, it's Jesus' perfect praises that he hears. When you pray to your Father in heaven using Jesus' name, it's Jesus' record that stands for you. And that means that this psalm, far from heaping more guilt, far from adding more unattainable targets to shoot at, this psalm, is an invitation to simply join in a song Jesus is already singing perfectly for us. I think that's a spe- where the Ash uh, sermon that I mentioned is especially helpful in showing us how to use this psalm and what it means for us. I talked about the, uh, that, that for us to have any hope of, of joining in this psalm, of, of offering appropriate praise like this, first we need to see Jesus as our perfect praise leader And then we need to understand how we can join him. So these last couple minutes, 
I want to just reflect for a minute on how we can join Jesus in the song that he's offering. At the end of Psalm 45, I want you to hear Jesus singing, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. And then hear Jesus saying, let all flesh praise his holy name forever and ever. And hear that as Jesus' invitation to you and to me to join in. It's not, here's here's where you've got to understand the gospel, friends. This is not Jesus inviting us to imitate him. It isn't Jesus saying, all right, I finished with my verse, handing us the mic and saying, you, now let's hear what you've got. You heard me singing like that, so why not take up your own mic? I mean, how many of you would do that if you're at karaoke around here in Nashville on a karaoke night? You happen to find yourself at a karaoke night and Taylor Swift is up before you and she sings one of her own songs. Then she hands you the mic and says, here, you sing the next one. And who's going to do that? Her sparkling track record, just displayed for all to hear, becomes not not an empowering, not an enabling thing, but a crushing burden to carry, right? But imagine if, if she's singing and she invites you to sing too. She's got the mic. Everyone's paying attention to her. They're not really probably even going to hear much of you in that context. But she invites the crowd. Come on, join in. And everybody joins her singing. That's a different scenario, isn't it? Because it's her tune to carry and yours, your job is just to join in. Think about Psalm 145 verse 21 is that sort of invitation. Jesus' mouth is already speaking the praise of the Lord. You're with him. When God sees him, he's hearing you too. So why not just go ahead and join in? You don't have to carry that song. He's doing that. Ash says it's a great encouragement to us in our many failures, our down days, our sin, and our lack of praise to grasp that these exhortations to praise are not a challenge to take the microphone at the front of the stage but an invitation to join the choir headed by Jesus, our praise leader. Your choice today, friends, is whether or not you can say, my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King. You must choose to start as this psalmist does. But why not start today? You don't have to bear the weight of forever. Forever rests on Jesus' shoulders. To keep our metaphor going, Jesus is carrying that tune. You're not on your own with that. You are hidden with Christ in God. His praises are your praises. So why not sing with them? For love. What's to keep you from offering praise today? Because ultimately, seeing this as something led by Jesus and joined in on by all the generations of those who have known God's kindness means that, that your role today is just to stand up in the wave. This is another great example that Ash gives. I want to apply it from a recent wave experience that I had. So that my boys and I, we went to, uh, to the watch party for the final games of the College World Series watching our Vandy boys bring home the crown, which they did. Due to lightning, one of those nights, they moved us indoors off the baseball field we'd been watching on the Jumbotron into, an, into the sauna that was the non-air-conditioned Memorial Gymnasium. That part was all lost except for the fact that now we could see the other people that we were with and we were all in a circle and somebody started the wave. My boys had never experienced one. And it was uh, admittedly a pretty anemic wave, uh, partly because the, it wasn't full and not everybody was really into it, but it was a wave nonetheless. It would start over and we would watch it come around and when it comes to us, what do we do? We stand up, we throw our hands up and we say, woo, and watch it go. And then it comes back and our job is just to stand up for our moment and be part of that wave when it hits us. 
And I think this psalm is calling us to see ourselves as just participants in a wave of praise that's been handed down from generation to generation to generation to generation to you. And now you get to pass it on. That wave is bigger than you. It'll go on without you. You don't have to carry all the weight of perfect praise forever and ever. That weight is all on Jesus who carries it perfectly. But you do get to stand up when your time comes. And you get to raise your arms and you get to shout. And you know what? You can do that now, today. In just a moment, I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing two songs that invite you into praise. These are songs that have been sung by faithful Christians for a long time. You get to sing them this morning. Your opportunity to embrace this psalm is right in front of you. Why not? Why not start singing with Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I do pray that you would help us to embrace the call that this psalm places on our lives to be part of an unbroken string of praise to you for your kindness that stretches on through all of eternity. We pray that our lives, as brief and fleeting as they are, would be maximized by your power, through your spirit, for your praise. As long as we have breath, let us praise you. And we pray that you would give us the special sweetness that comes from praising you with your son and knowing that what we offer to you is not meant to impress, but simply as a, as a natural outflow of the experience we've had of your goodness in our lives. Thank you that you are pleased with us because of him. And so now we can sing freely to you in his name. We pray in Jesus' name right now. Amen.